0: When I was a ski instructor
1: in the 60s. You're listening to the Locked In Shed podcast. I'm Richard Barber, and this is the second of my recordings intended to create a learning resource for snowsport coaches, with content about the science and art of coaching, as well as the history of snowsport in the UK. So far, I've learned about how one of the UK's most influential characters got into the sport and how these experiences impacted on him. I wanted to find out more about how the structure of English skiing developed in the 1970s and John Shedden's role in promoting the sport and the formation of the national governing body. Along the way there are also some curious insights into the similarities between close pegs and early artificial ski slopes and the impact of English ski racing on the Swedish ski star Ingemar, Denmark. Arguably the best ski racer in history ever.
0: When I was a ski instructor in the 60s there were two, two developments happening in parallel. There was the development of ski instruction in Scotland which Bapsy, which later became BASI, was leading in terms of standards and qualifications and so on and there was the formation of the National Ski Federation of Great Britain based in London which was developing as a governing body with a responsibility to develop three things. One was to field international teams at the top level of the sport. Another one was to have a democratic structure and accountability to the membership which was clubs and whoever else wanted to join the governing body, and a national coaching scheme, which had the responsibility to train people who wanted to join the sport and develop through uh, to the highest levels that they were capable of. The Sports Council was formed in the mid-1960s, and the Sports Council funded governing bodies to do what they were supposed to do, it would not fund and did not fund any professional bodies at all. And we have to remember that at that time, there was a significant distinction between gentlemen and players. So the gentlemen ran the organizations like the Football Association or the Tennis uh, Association and the Ski Association and so on, and the players were the professionals, and. Professionals were not allowed to compete, so in skiing, for example, it wasn't until the mid seventies that professional skiers or skiers who earned money from skiing were allowed to compete in the Olympic Games. So in the sixties, the these two organisations, BAPSI in Scotland and the NSFGB based in London but covering the whole of Britain Ran parallel schemes, and the first artificial slope ski instructor qualification was trained for and awarded at Torquay in 1965. The training was given by Arne Palm, who was the head instructor from Norway, but it was overseen by uh, a TD from the International Ski Federation, and also uh, there were observers there from Basie. Now after this scheme got underway basey were asked if they would provide staffing and training for the amateur ski instructors who were serving the development of the sport in england scotland wales and so on on local snow and on, uh, on artificial ski slopes so the 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 assi award initially authorised the holder to teach skiing introduce skiing. On, to, on dry ski slopes or on local snow, not on mountains, not in the mountains, but just on the, the cricket pitch if it happened to snow at the end of the field, that sort of thing. And in, in the mid-1960s, Basie was asked, as I said, to provide an input into this and refused. They said they weren't interested in artificial ski slopes or anything similar. And Robin Brock-Hollinshead, who was the national coach, approached myself and Ali Ross to do training courses around artificial ski slopes in England and so on. And shortly after, I was appointed as assistant national coach to travel around England, Wales and Ireland with Robin to encourage clubs and others to develop and to encourage people to build artificial ski slopes and so on. And we carried with us a stock of skis and boots and a roll-out plastic surface which we put on the hills at the end of school playing fields and so on and just showed people how easy it was to have a go at skiing in some form or other. And that developed to such a degree that BASI changed its name from Bapsy to BASI, dropping the professional in the hope that they would be able to access Sports Council funding. Of course, the change in the name didn't change the name of the nature of the organisation, so they weren't eligible for any funding and never had been, although they were supported initially by the Highlands and Islands Development Board to help develop a structure for tourism in Scotland.
1: So you, you took the mountains to the people and you taught people to ski on this roll-out surface?
0: Yes. But not in a serious attempt to teach them to ski, but in a serious attempt to show them that it would be possible if they built something bigger along the same lines. And we encourage lots of local authorities and private organisations and some schools to do this and uh, and holiday organisations to do this.
1: Artificial slope numbers rose to about 100 at their peak. How, How many were there back then?
0: Oh, off the top of my head, uh, one, two, three, four, less than 10, I would have thought.
1: Hmm. Um, and the, the the history of those slopes, how would those 10 come into being?
0: <laughs> yes. Well, commercial initiative, essentially, that Lily Whites and other shops in the London area built indoors uh, artificial slopes covered in coconut matting or some similar material. And in the north of England, Ellis Brigham Ski Shops built a couple of artificial ski slopes in the cellars or somewhere else in in churches. And and, uh, in Carlisle, Bob Denton had a ski school for his uh, shop and uh, Ali Ross worked there all summer, as I did it for Bob Brigham in Manchester. Initially building the ski slopes in the beginning of the summer, teaching people during the summer and then training instructors to work on those ski slopes in the winter when Ali went and I went back to the mountains in Scotland. The ones in London changed surface and um, introduced an, an Italian material called Aquaderni which was the, the, the format of what we now know as Dendix bristles but they, it was made of an injection molded plastic that looked like Dendix. And the Dendix bristle company in Chepstow then developed a design which allowed PVC bristles, which were much more maneuverable, but significantly didn't deteriorate almost instantly uh, with no notice in ultraviolet light. But one of the problems with injection molded materials is that It stands up for a while and then it may just suddenly disintegrate if it's out in the sunlight. So Dendix provided a viable alternative to snow in that respect. You could lay it on a hillside, drain it and so on and so forth.
1: It was interesting, John, actually, in my time at Gloucester, doing various alterations to the ski slopes there, came across some of the injection moulded material and I, I still have some. It's got the mats and mud and the the red sandstony colours that come out of the soil there. Uh, It it really goes right through the material. And you can see where they've snapped off, and it's a very brittle fracture, where the the filaments, essentially from brush-making, are um, uh, are very much
0: more flexible. Well, they're made by extrusion rather than injection moulding. And the process causes the molecules... Uh, the the structure of the of the filaments to be different, so they they behave completely differently in the uh, in the sunlight and, and so on. Um, I mean, you can. See, this is a digression, but you see the same thing with your uh, clothes pegs. I put clothes pegs out on the line to hang my washing out, but I leave them there. Sometimes when I then go to put some new washing out, the clothes peg just falls apart when I when I try and uh, open it.
1: You leave them there. I, I, I'm surprised at you, John. You leave them. There. I suppose that's uh, that's efficiency and effectiveness is having them there where you need
0: them. Absolutely. I buy clothes pegs which have two, uh, two holes in two shapes. One which is small, one which is large. If you put the large one over the uh, the washing line, you can move them backwards and forwards easily, and just pull them all to where you want, and then work your way along the washing line. Oh. Uh, Tie, tying the washing arm using the smaller
1: holes <laughs> you have to select i see i I, kn- I knew you'd have an explanation whereas i'm more of a brian hanrahan when it comes to clothes pegs i have them in a container and i count them all out and i count them all back in again
0: <laughs> i used to do that but <laughs> <laughs>
1: well okay i never knew clothes pegs has so much to do with artificial ski slopes but the, yes the principle exists and um those materials the dendix material and and versions of it of yeah. course still in existence decades and decades later yeah. and many have tried to do other things with varying degrees of success yes so there we were with with about 10 slopes that uh probably individuals was it that mainly got interested in in having an artificial slope and built something
0: a, a few of them were Clubs Pendle Ski Club was one of the earliest, and put some matting down on the hillside, which was actually carpet made by a company called Heckman Dwight, um, from Hebden Bridge, just up the road from Pendle in uh, Pendle in Lancashire, Hebden Bridge in Yorkshire, and they made this carpet specifically to look like dendix, but just simply by weaving it, so it had diamond-shaped bristles made of carpet, and that was Pendle's first slope. And uh, that got worn out and replaced and extended and so on and so forth until it's now you know, quite a reasonable, significant though, on which people who come second in the World Cup races in people can, can learn to ski on and train on, which was always our, our function. The purpose of the governing body was to receive taxpayers' money at the top end to finance and support international ski racing but a condition was that the taxpayers had to have access to that sport and in the 1960s they didn't. Essentially if you wanted to be a ski racer it was a very expensive business which you could only do by living in the Alps or training in the Alps at very high expenses. By creating a pathway for local people to access the sport Artificial ski slopes facilitated that and became the the, the basis for the formation of the uh, National Ski Federation's structure and credibility. The problem was that the people at the top of the sport, whether it be the international ski racers, the administrators of international ski racing, and in ski instruction terms, BASI at that time, didn't see artificial ski slopes as being Proper skiing. They didn't see it as a significant uh, relation to skiing worthy of support. And because of the lack of support for grassroots development of the sport in England, there were continuing conflicts which went on for 10 years. And the conflict was essentially that the Sports Council were funding the Ski Federation at the top level provided they allowed access for taxpayers. And the Scots and the Alpine Racing Club organisations didn't agree that ski slopes could play a significant part in that. And so they didn't support the formation of a national coaching scheme for the National Ski Federation of Great Britain to develop the sport. But the Sports Council said, unless English taxpayers Can access the sport, we're not supporting skiing because English taxpayers are by far the majority of taxpayers. So the fact that Scotland disagreed didn't matter to the British government because the British government needed English taxpayers to have access to the sport locally in the same way as they could have access to other sports locally. So our job was to try and create as much local access to skiing and to facilitate that for English taxpayers and they couldn't agree on this within the National Ski Federation of Great Britain so the development committee which had been set up by Lord Hunt of Everest fame in the 1960s evolved into an English Ski committee within the Ski Federation which then got without going into all the voting details was formed into the English Ski Council in 1977, and it took two years to actually create the formal legal structure of the English Ski Council. But by 1979, when the English Ski Council was formally formed, the National Ski Federation of Great Britain literally went out of business because the Sports Council wouldn't fund it anymore. And so the funding came to the English Ski Council to develop the National Coaching Scheme on behalf of Great Britain. But with specific access to English skills.
1: Oops! Just things were going so well, we hit a bit of an interweb moment, a bit of a communication breakdown. Let's sort it out. So, John. So sorry, so to interrupt. If I if I do that, just to get a word in. <laughs> um, uh, it's really interesting.
0: Unfortunately, your hand is behind my image. On the oh. No, no, it's okay.
1: I, now I know what you mean. I, I thought you were reaching okay. for something. Go on. <laughs> no, no. Um, what, um, what, what's in my mind is that there, there were very strong associations there regarding the funding in relation to the participation and, and where it took place. And that's really interesting in terms of the... The, the rationale behind the funding at that time. In, in the work that I do on some of the committees within the, the governing body, you see the funding cycle that we currently have over a 3 to 4 year cycle and there are there are emphases placed there and those emphases change on each funding cycle so I'm curious to know what your observations are during your time from then on did did the did the rationale for the the funding remain about participation in England or did some other emphases come in
0: the policies from the government through the sports council to all governing bodies of sport, were related to an overall policy called Sport for All, which Dave Francis, who became a director, uh, the first um, director of the English Ski Council when it was formed and set up its first office, uh, or its first fully staffed office in Hales-Owen, Dave Francis worked for the Sports Council and was instrumental in developing the Sport for All concept and lots of the policies which related to sport for all, long before it had anything to do with skiing. And essentially the emphasis within that policy changed, as you say, every four years from participation at grassroots level, emphasis on the development of facilities. The Sports Council used to have an architect's office in the facilities department to help governing bodies develop and enhance and improve their facilities. And then the emphasis would change to uh, talent identification and the the pathway through toward excellence for those participants who've been introduced to the activity to make their next steps. And then there'd be an emphasis on facilitating access into international levels of sport. Then it would go back uh, either to the development of facilities Uh, if they needed upgrading to meet now the new standards for international sport. In swimming, for example, which was my sport before I was a skier, British records were held in 25-meter pools. And a man down the road from me, Neil McKechnie, held every uh, British record from the 100 uh, yards to the mile, all created in a 25-meter pool. And of course, somebody then observed that actually this was more about turning than about swimming. So if you, if you did a long dive and then turn quickly, <laughs> you could, uh, <laughs> and you were a tall person, you could, uh, you could break records. So they changed it. They changed the rules to 33 and a third meter pools, uh, 33 and a third yard pools. And then they changed the rules to 50 meters. So as we, as the sport developed, the demands on facilities changed which is how English Key Council was able to get a grant to support the development of Gloucester by uh, saying that in order to meet the new standards of English competition, that we required a different length of facility. And so we were encouraging facilities to change their length and change their layout according to the requirements of the sport as decided by Mm. the English Key Council.
1: So uh, for those listening who may know of Gloucester Ski Centre, there are two large slopes there uh, in metric terms, over over 200 metres. And I remember when I joined there as the, the manager, I came across some documentation relating to the, the Sports Council grant and some of the conditions relating to that in supporting the governing body and that's something that that really lived with me all through my time in the sport is actually the relationship between the the centre and the governing body to enhance and promote the sport and to give back to the national squad and for activities around education and development of personnel and that sort of thing it was very novel that that was written in in there I think.
0: Yes, it occurred in lots of places that I can't think off the top of my head now. Or all the other facilities, but there were other ski centres which uh, received some sort of grant from the sports council, from the government, that is, through the English Ski Council, in order to develop their facilities. For in Gloucester's case, the location of the All England Championships as a national race or series of races. Other places required better learning facilities to enable more beginners to be taught at once so slopes could be widened instead of lengthened and so on. So a different criteria were set, but the support was against, as you say, access to those facilities by the governing body. And of course, uh, being the sports council, written in a written agreement, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is only sensible because the management of all the organisations change and people forget what happened under the previous leadership or ownership. Mm. Or whatever. Well,
1: it's interesting for me because it really did live with me And that during my time there, the agreement did come to an end, but the philosophy of supporting the governing body really sort of stuck with me in that it... it we would always try and do it either free of charge or at the minimum possible rate to sort of justify <laughs> to others that uh, this activity was fair and reasonable, if you like. And and it's something that I'm seeing at the moment. Um, as we're recording this, we're several weeks into the, the COVID pandemic in the United Kingdom and there are lots of people thinking about how to open up and reoperate their ski centers in the light of that and um, there's a, a great community of people talking about well what can we do to get these activities going what where are the information sources from government agencies filtered through the governing body to to the organizations and and having discussions about well what can we get going and then likewise with the clubs We'd love to get back to doing some training. Can we do it? Not at the moment. But then if we can do that, when can we start to get competitions going again? And how will they look? Will they look the same or will they need to be different? And so on. So um, for me, that was a very formative time about the the value and the role of a, a governing body in promoting the sport and actually getting people participating in the first place.
0: Yes, a governing body has a comprehensive responsibility from people who don't yet take part in the sport to be encouraged to take part in an activity which hopefully should be a pleasurable leisure activity for them, but for them to aspire to be the best they can be at it. And if that means taking part in competitions, then there should be structures which will facilitate that as well. It's interesting, just as a little digression, that when we ran the first artificial slope championships for England in 1976 at Rossendale, there were two quite large slopes other than Rossendale. One was at uh, Torquay, the other was at Hill End in Scotland, and both of them used slightly different methods to set slalom courses. But the one in Scotland, which was the biggest, used normal slalom poles, which they stuck in through the matting into the ground and when Rossendale was built that wasn't allowed there was a, a membrane between the surface and the soil to keep the ski slope clean and so I asked the different organizations clubs and regional ski associations to come up with some ideas about how they could set slalom courses on their little slopes which we could use at Rossendale for the All England Championships. And the second year, two particular methods uh, were used. One was invented by Sandown Park, which involved wooden blocks with a big hole drilled through it and plastic piping just literally stuck into the, the blocks. And they were slotted under the Dendix matting. And as skiers went over them and hit the poles and bent them, then the, every gatekeeper alongside had a hacksaw and cut off uh, an inch or two of the bottom of the slalom pole so it would now fit firmly back in the hole again And until the two meter slalom pole came down to one meter eighty. And at that point, it was then moved to the outside gate of the, at the outside pole of the gate, and uh, another two meter pole was put in. So, very effective, very simple to do. Uh, and invented, as I say, at Sandown Park. Meanwhile, at Rossendale, the Rossendale Ski Club, through Peter Nuttall, who was an engineer, in- invented a mechanism which had a-, a metal plate which slid under the matting. It was a diamond shaped plate, it slid under the matting to which a spring was attached, and you slotted the slalom pole on top of this spring. And that enabled the pole to move when you hit it. It took a few goes to get the tempering of the steel right so it didn't snap and just remain flexible. But interestingly, in, in the late 1970s, I then took film and samples of those two bases to uh, an International Ski Federation conference about teaching and training. And I was, on, I was on the teaching and training committee of the International Ski Federation and showed them how we did this and what mechanisms we were using to train children and youngsters on our artificial ski slopes. And a German guy there was very interested in the spring-loaded one. And he took, he mm. took photographs of it and took it away and came back the next year to the conference with uh, slalom poles which had spring-loaded ends on them and at the bottom of the spring, a screw which could screw into the ice. And he proposed that they were used on glaciers for summer training. And that meant that a team, instead of having to have gatekeepers at almost every gate, could train down a course with very few staff. So it was a much cheaper alternative for summer training on glaciers. And after the racers had been training on these in the summer for a number of years, they wanted to use them in races. So the FIS then agreed to introduce them to Racing And I remember Ingemar Stenmark winning the Kitzbühel men's slalom by something like several seconds clear of everybody else. And David Vine, who was commentating on Ski Sunday, said, this is amazing, this is amazing, I have no idea how he did it. And by then, my book, Skillful Skiing, had been written, and in it, there was a picture of Malcolm Erskine Doing what Stenmark was doing, but Malcolm was doing it at Gloucester on an artificial ski slope, where he's putting his skis one side of the pole, but his legs, body, and everything were at the other side of the pole. And Stenmark was using this technique, which he'd obviously developed in training through these spring loaded poles, and executing it far better than anybody else. And so Stenmark can owe his success to Malcolm Erskine's skill at skiing down a pole. Aslam it lost. <laughs> so we, we have influenced international ski racing
1: in all sorts of different ways. Wow, amazing. And what a great point to pause the conversation today and great start to our next discussion to learn more about the studies that you did and the influences on your thinking and how that went into your writing work and the the formation of the, the national coaching scheme.
0: Thanks, Richie. I look forward
1: to that. And my thanks again to John Shedden for his time today on the Locked In Shed podcast. In 1982, Ingemar Stenmark won the men's slalom at Kitzbühel by the huge margin of 3.16 seconds. And it wouldn't it be great to think that an innovation at an artificial ski slope in Britain had such an influence on the future direction of world class competition? This has been a Locked In Shed podcast. We hope you're enjoying them and that you'll join us next time. And until then, stay safe, look after yourself and bye-bye for now.